Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the acting editor of CapEx. Peter Riddell is one of the country's foremost analysts of the workings of government, parliament and Whitehall. Prior to his current role as Commissioner for Public Appointments, Peter was the Director of the Institute for Government and a journalist with over 40 years' experience writing for publications including the FT and the Times. He's also the author of eight books, including 15 Minutes of Power, The Uncertain Life of British Ministers, and In Defence of Politicians, In Spite of Themselves. Our assistant editor, Frank Lawton, began by asking Peter why politicians needed defending in the first place. Well, they need defending because they've been under attack. Um, and in a sense, they've always been under attack. Um, when I did my book in defence of politicians eight years ago, this was shortly after the expensive scandal. Now, that was something egregious, but it was much more fundamental than that. I mean, the, the National Anthem's got a bit about the, 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 the wickedness of politicians, the plenty of quotes in Shakespeare, and so on and so forth. I mean, look at the cartoons of Gil Ray I, 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 in, in my, my office's Commission of Public Appointments. I've got a couple of very um, robust cartoons probably couldn't appear in a paper nowadays <laughs> from the early 19th century. Um, so... They've always been unpopular, um, but that was, in a sense, in a different culture of when it was very elite. Um, right, the, the mob had its say, but it was the mob rather than voters. And I think what's happened is that in, I mean, the various things, the, the economic collapse and 08 onwards, the expensive scandal here, then the general rise of populism, as all fed the view of politicians as scoundrels. Um, both in the narrow sense of in it for themselves, financially, which is uh, largely, not entirely uh, wrong, and also out of touch with voters and so on. So my my view was they needed defending, partly, um, I believe, in representative democracy rather than uh, plebiscitary democracy. Um, Obviously, we've now got exceptions to that, but in general. And you need politicians to do it, and most of them are decent people. And it's allied with something which... It's come up a lot in the last year, which is they may you may disagree with people, but you've got to respect their motives and on the whole, not all entirely, and, and that led, that led to the book really. And of course, the other thing is, is social media and the internet has fed a culture of um, all politicians are scoundrels, dreadful people. I mean, you know, within two minutes, you and I could find something on on the web uh, saying whatever politician you name is is dreadful. Well, you mentioned the challenges to representative democracy. 
do you think that those are worse now than they have been in the past or that this is just something that is always under threat? I think it's more under threat for two reasons. One is that they said it's a result of the lack of respect and mm. politicians being uh, regarded as scoundrels, the strains, and this applies, you know, in, and if you look at what's happened to the established parties in, in most large countries, um, it is true of their, um, their position is, is challenged. Um, but I, no, I think it has got worse, but it's been fed worse by the impact of social media unquestionably, because... Now, in many respects, that's great. I mean, having an open debate, you know, one shouldn't... I mean, when I started off as a journalist, I was a political journalist, um, it it was a very narrowly defined um, political conversation. And um, you had very few television outlets, you had people like me as political editor, known as the Financial Times, um, you know, had quite a big influence on debate. I think it's much, it's great, it's opened up, but it, it's opened up in a completely unrestrained way where people aren't responsible for what they do. And um, that feeds this culture of challenging politicians that they're scoundrels and everything. Mm. And of course, I mean, naturally, it's been fed by Brexit and the European debate, which has produced a polarisation um, of uh, 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 which is. Um, which again, you know, if you don't agree with me, you're a traitor. I think one problem is we we move to referendums, not that that's necessarily wrong, but without defining the terms properly. It is it almost without thinking out how they fit in the system. Previously, there'd been a safety valve. There was a safety valve in '75 when we voted to stay in the then European Community. Um, they were an affirmatory thing in Scotland, narrowly in Wales, in '97. And then later in London with the London Mayor. But no one has really fitted when it's so close. So you don't think that plebiscitary democracy undermines representative democracy? You think it can go hand in hand, but it depends upon the context? If it's it's taken too far, it undermines it. Because the the essence of representative democracy is a bundling, that that you have trade-offs. Um, how are you going to uh, work out the balance between tax and spending? And um, ultimately, I don't see a better system of representative democracy of doing that. Um, I think there are some fundamental um, constitutional issues um, where a a referendum is probably right. I mean, being part of the United Kingdom Union, I think it's absolutely right to have one in Scotland. I'm the two in Scotland. We had 79 and then... um, 97. Equally, if, if Scotland at any stage um, wants to leave, you need a repeat of 2014. And that, because that's the fundamental decision, partly cuts across party, but I, th- I think it's absolutely right that more people involved. I think the problem with the European one was defining the terms. Mm. And that's led to the bitterness and everything else. I think that, that's the great problem of that. And that, you know, perfectly reasonable people uh, 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 who are each other's throats as a result. Do you think then that the experience that we're having mm. with plebiscitary democracy will mean that we'll have less of it in the future, we'll have more of it in the future, or that we'll just have to deal with it in a, in a different way? Um, and if, if so, then how, how do we deal with it in a different way? I, mean, I, 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 I hesitate to say post-Brexit. In the, <laughs> I, I don't mean whatever happens on October 31st or whether in or out. But what I mean is um, when we're past the Brexit argument, mm. um, I think we'll be considerably older probably, but it, it, it's when we can look back on it and, um, and then reflect on it. I think 
that you still will have referendums, but, but better thought out in terms of the way they run, the way they're structured, the way the questions are asked. I mean, Scotland was, in a sense, straightforward, um, because either you were in the Union, but it, well, it did beg lots of questions. If it had gone yes in 2014, the, all the questions about currency and all that, which had been fudged by um, Alex Salmond at the time, but in fact had been addressed, it would have been very difficult. Um, but I think they will still be there, but I think there'll be a marked reluctance insofar as we have still the same party structures now, and who knows, um, to go into them as a regular part of, of, of politics because of, we've seen what's happened in the last three years. Uh, you've talked about your, or touched on your work as a journalist. Yeah. I just wanted to bring you back mm. to that. You wrote in 2006 that political journalism can be saved. Yeah. Was it? Uh, I think it's, well, it still exists, and there's still some very good people writing in various forums. I mean, I, I think one thing which I, I, I've never bought the distinction um, between um, you know, Deadwood media, mainstream media, whatever you like to call it, and exciting, new, vibrant media. I think both coexist. And indeed, even at the end of my period as a journalist, which is now nine years ago, um, it, it, being active in social media was becoming part of um, a mainstream journalist's um, responsibilities. I think it could be saved, but it, I mean, it's not saying, oh, we just stick to print or whatever. It means um, uh, being adaptable, but it also means preserving some of the values, the values of, of not being propagandist. I think one of the things which, again, it's a result of Brexit, it has produced a kind of propagandist journalism on, on, on both sides. I mean, it, it, both sides I mean, of justifying... And I'm being sucked in. And what it's made it much harder to do is a more detached analytical approach. And in fact, you know, saying, um, well, the, 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 you know, the pluses and minuses of, of, any, of any position, I mean, it's very seldom clear cut. And that's become harder. And I think that has become harder. Whilst it isn't partisan necessarily in the party sense, because that's party structures are so under, under challenge at present, it has become partisan in relation to Brexit. And you're either supporting us or you're not. And I think that has been unhealthy for journalism, but there's still some very good journalists around. I mean, I, people I respect and read, but not necessarily in newspapers, but often online. And I think that, that that's one of the virtues of, of the broader internet and social media. It has allowed new entrants. I mean, it, it has produced what people thought it would do, but it's also had the downside of unattributable staff, um, people getting involved in personal things. But, but do you think that the rise of social media and these other platforms, these other ways of consuming news, has sort of forced, at least say, the traditional news media into a position where it sort of has to polarise itself to try and corner more of them, to hold off some of the market? Yeah, I, I, I'm not convinced of that. I mean, there's a classic retort of people outside journalism over that sensational story would boost sales. Well, very seldom does, actually. I mean, the correlation between... Um, I mean, events can boost sales. I mean, 9-11, princess died, death, whatever, um, can. I'm, 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 I, I, I don't think necessarily coverage can. I think what it does do is make it harder for people to say, hold on. The, the real challenge, and it applies to politicians as well, in, in a couple of books I've written, I make this point. They've lost the benefit of time. The, the great thing in the past... And it could be a, a, a bad thing as well, but the, the positive thing was people had time to reflect. They didn't have to react immediately. Now you have to react immediately. 
Why is it a response? Why is it that? And the same is true of journalism, that you, you've got to have your instant story out. Now, it used to be the kind of wire services, you know, we got the interest rate before you did by a millisecond and that made us a lot of money. Well, that's that world. But it, it, it doesn't allow you time to reflect, to check, so it does result in um, an exaggerated response some of the time, rather than saying, standing back, talking to other people. And when I, when I was a political journalist starting out, I mean, I had one plus deadlines a day, basically at 6.37 o'clock. So during the course of the day, I could talk to people. Nowadays, my successors um, would have done two or three um, online pieces. Now, in fact, their methods were rather good, but they, 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 there is a tendency to believe that newness is significant. I mean, it's, it's a function of 24-hour news. I mean, I, I draw a line between 24-hour news and the, and the internet and social media. I mean, it's very much the same phenomenon. Is that because something's happened five minutes ago, it's more important than something happened 20 minutes ago. Well, no, not necessarily. And it's very hard to say no mm-hmm. and to slow things down a bit and to reflect. On that question of time, do you think it's the responsibility of politicians or it should be the responsibility of politicians to essentially say no and try and build in more time into their responses or do you think that's just a sort of naive dream? I think it would be very desirable if they did. Um, Very desirable if they could build in more time to reflect, to talk and consider. Um, I mean, it's easier said than done. I mean, it sounds sounds rather pious and blah, blah, blah. Actually, as in most things in life, reflection is quite a good idea. Not a massive amount, but enough to think what does this matter? How should I respond to that? Um, it's quite interesting in relation to crises of various kinds. Um, the, the most successful people responding are those who find out what's happened first. Um, it sounds a funny thing to say, but it's true. If you find out what's happened, um, you're probably going to get it right rather than rush into a response. And then you're shown... Actually, it's something else that's gone wrong, and you, people question your integrity and all that. Better to try and hold on, then when you can show, you're on top of it. Do you think then that politicians are overburdened? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. in what they have to do, in what is expected of them, in what they expect perhaps of themselves with regards to response time? I think they are. I think they've made themselves such in some respects. I mean, the, 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 um, 
the you know, famous anecdotes of um, Harold Macmillan when he was Prime Minister retiring to, to read Trollope and Jane Austen, um, uh, if only. Um, and I think it would be a lot better if people created a bit of time in the day to pause and think, instead of which being surrounded by advisors going in and out, um, saying, oh, you must say this, you must say that, we've got this coming up, that coming up. Um, to try and slow things down. They are overburdened um, because they're overburdened with expectations, um, some of which are unrealistic. Uh, that's why some people, I mean, um, whatever you think of his views on, on Europe, um, Kenneth Clark had an appeal because he, he gave the feeling that he'd actually rather be at Ronnie Scott's or having a pint or whatever, and there was authenticity there. And there are others like that too, but the, 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 who can slow things down and think about things. Um, and I, you know, I, I can think of a number of others. I mean, it's, it doesn't particularly matter where it is on the political spectrum. But it, 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 it's that ability to say, OK, what's going on? Let's think about it. Get people around the table. So that's a burden then on the politicians themselves as opposed to the system within which they work. Well, the, you, it's very difficult to distinguish the two. Right. It's one which they find it very hard to resist. Uh, very, very hard to resist. It's quite interesting that prime ministers, I've talked to, this goes back mainly to, uh, I mean, well, two in particular, uh, John Major and Tony Blair, whom I knew well, because um, I knew them during their rise during the 80s. And I remember asking them, mm, what, what was the unexpected thing of being prime minister? And there were two things, one was a very specific thing, um, which was Northern Ireland, just took up much more time than anyone expected. It's a, very, it's a, it's a people business, all the And the second was the succession of decisions being required all the time. That they, um, that you, you, you get things coming at them from all sides, and to try and slow it down and say, okay, this really matters, and this doesn't. That both of them said that was one of the most difficult things. That if you were chancellor, you only had a few big decisions. Um, but if you're Prime Minister, you have constant decisions. People constantly want to see you. They want your time. And, and, and to deal with that is very, very difficult. And that, that's what makes out. I mean, some people, I mean, classically, Anthony Eden in the past, um, can't cope with that and, 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 and crumple under pressure. Um, others can handle it. Um, but that's a real test of that. And that's an extreme example. Um, you know, Secretary of State, they have far more decisions to take. And also, the outsider's problem is we all think that the crisis which we're focused on is the most important thing in the minister's life. It may or may not be. Um, and I remember talking to, to, in fact, David Cameron's era, to Ed Llewellyn, and something had come up. And I said, well, isn't it interesting, you were doing five other things that day. And he said, dead right, actually, it was more than five, it was ten. Which, at the time, we thought were equally important. Um, but this thing has created the big hoo-ha in the papers and the big row and all that. But actually, a lot of the others were very important, dealing with other countries, um, dealing with you know, internal stuff. And you, 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 the real challenge, I think, for political journalists is to get a sense of proportion of what's actually happening in the ministers' lives. I mean, that takes us on quite nicely to, mm. to your latest book, 15 Minutes of Power, um, for which you've interviewed scores of ministers yeah, yeah. Um, down the years. Um, about their time in office and the way in which um, they got things done or failed to get things done. What was the most surprising thing that you learnt? Comparatively, it surprised me because I've been doing it for so long. But um, what surprised me, I think 
actually, the even if they'd only been a minister for a year, 18 months, two years, their pride in office, for people you just thought sympathy for, not just because they were bad ministers, but because the, the wheel of fortune had gone against them in many cases, um, they were on the whole, and perhaps that's an aspect of being an elected politician, fairly, fairly philosophical about it. I mean, we did most of the interviews uh, at the Institute for Government about at least two months after people had gone. I mean, we, we, there has to be a grieving period and so on. And so most of them had put it in perspective. But the, 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 the interesting thing was that they were proud of what they'd done and just regarded it as, well, that's, that's what happens in life. You know, I may not be there for long um, and, you know, I did my bit. So that perhaps surprised me. I mean, I, I find it very unsatisfactory that the... Um, the idea you leave someone in a job for a very short period of time um, is, I mean, was the best one in the world. They're not going to master the brief. It's not a matter of changing or imposing on the civil service or anything like that. It's just a matter, it takes time um, to come, come up to it. And then there's a, there's a big gap between announcing something and it being implemented. And one of the great shocks, and I refer to that in the book, when the Labour Shadow Cabinet had a session pre the 97 election, and Patricia Hewitt had worked for Accenture, the management consultants, lined up lots of managers. And she very freely says that the whole thing was a bit of a mess because the Shadow Cabinet members, many of whom became you know, quite prominent Cabinet ministers after the May 97 election, um, were said, thought all this was pie in the sky. They thought if they announced something, it would happen mm-hmm. without realising you were going to have a white paper, you're going to have legislation, you're going to prepare anything significant will take probably two or three years at least, by which time there won't be in office. So what, why is that? Why do we have such a remarkably quick turnaround, it seems? I mean, that's something... From... I, I mean, one of the reasons is... I mean, there have been particular factors in the last year or two which have, which have, which have, which have made the whirly gig turn... Well, so that's the appropriate metaphor, turn back much faster. But discounting that, it's the feeling of... Um, quite unusually in the British system, that... Being a minister is part of the patronage system, part of the loyalty system. Prime ministers feel they have to refresh it. And I have in the book a wonderful quote from Jonathan Powell, who was chief of staff to, to Tony Blair, saying, Tony would have loved to have appointed all Labour MPs as ministers. I think possibly one or two exceptions, and, and the current leadership of the Labour Party. But anyway, um, it, but there was an element of truth in that. Therefore, we had all these unpaid ministers and ancillary ministers, because it's, it's, it's to keep them on, on board. The, the dilemma then becomes is you, you want to give an incentive to people on the backbenches, but of course you also annoy ex-ministers who then can then become rebels and so on. So it's also pure accident. I mean, governments are remarkably accident-prone, so the resignations and so on. So it, it's that. But one of the one of the things I criticise is that they don't, or haven't in the past, um, tried to minimise the collateral impact, the waves... That even if someone's got to go, you can bring someone back who's been an ex-minister. You try and isolate the impact. So the result is, for people who are doing a pretty good job, went after 18 months, and, and for no... I mean, merely because there, were, there was knock-on effects from, from other things. So that is very unsatisfactory, because it, it results in the whole learning process starting again. It may not be a big change of policy, but it's, it's just not going to be as clear-cut as in the past. And it has a bad effect on policy. Um, really bad effect is that ministers know this and therefore they go more short-termist. 
They think, what can I make an impact in the next year which will impress the whips, impress the PM, so I'll get promoted and, uh, and, uh, and that, rather than recognise that you know, if you're doing lasting change in housing, the fact we've had virtually a housing ministry a year since 2010 is not good news for housing. But surely Prime Ministers realise this. A Prime Minister wants to get something done, wants to build a legacy. Surely it's, or they would recognise this as well. And yet still we have this churn. Well, two things on that. It's quite interesting. Some recent Prime Ministers have only been Prime Minister or one other Cabinet job. Um, if you look back, um, the last Prime Minister to have done more than one other Cabinet job was John Major. Um, if you go to Tony Blair, had done no cabinet jobs. Gordon Brown had been Chancellor. David Cameron had done none. Um, Theresa May had done one. Boris Johnson done, did one. And that, so they actually have less understanding. And it's quite interesting. Ministers, it doesn't matter what the party is, it's irrelevant. You, and in, in the book, it's reflected Tory, Labour, whatever, complain that Prime Ministers don't understand what it's like being a minister. They think that these are kind of chess pieces can be moved around at will, without realising what actually happens down in the depths, you know, within the half mile around where we're sitting now at Westminster, and that you do need a bit more continuity. And it's only those who actually experience that. And the last one, really, was John Major. Um, that's extraordinary, really. We're just talking um, uh, a very long time ago now, 22 years ago, experience being, what being a junior minister was. And, but well, the other thing is they're hit by you know, scandal. I mean, what I said recently, it's been policy differences and so on. That all means, oh, God, we're going to have a, a, a reshuffle, even though realising some of it's kind of productive. But I do criticise almost a frivolity you know, on key areas. I mean, housing is a particular example. I mean, you may have the, you know, agreed the policy, but you're not going to have successful implementation if you're constantly shifting the ministers. Equally, internationally... Quite interestingly, shifting round ministers dealing with international portfolios, and this is way pre-Brexit, 19th Brexit, is a real contrast to other countries who leave ministers in post for much longer. That's partly also coalitions. About to say why? Yeah, why is that? Why well, do we do that? I mean, I, I remember I met a group from from Germany when I ran the Institute for Government, and I tried to explain to them the concept of um, reshuffles, and they just didn't understand it. Because for them, all right, there were quite long negotiations at the beginning after an election, after a federal election in September, and they can last up to two or three months. But once the portfolios have been allocated between the parties, that's it. I mean, there can be changes. I mean, there was recently been changed in German Defence Minister, position of Line going to, to Brussels and, and, and so on and so forth. But in general, it sticks with the party and sticks with the person. Mm. And, um, and that ha- actually applied at the beginning of the Cameron government. The David Cameron realised this and didn't want to have many reshuffles. Also, the coalition meant that if he wanted to change some people, he had to negotiate with Nick Clegg. So all the cabinet posts stayed exactly... The personalities changed a bit on the Lib Dem side and also on the Tory side. But the, the allocation didn't, so it slowed things down. Because we're quite proud of the system of cabinet government in this country, and yet it seems like there are, as you're saying, rather a number of flaws with the way in which it operates, at least. Um, is, what would you be able to do to sort of improve the problems that you're outlining? Well, one... Is it possible? One frivolous answer is, of course, we've been going through a period without majority governments or without stable majority governments. When the era I well remember of the you know, massive Thatcher majorities, the Blair majorities, even though that was obviously disturbed by the Iraq war, enabled, although in fact, certainly Blair didn't do it, 
um, he fiddled a lot, um, but enabled a, a cooler, more rational. It, the last few years have not been easy for that poet. So my my my, my real answer is a government with a stable majority. Right. Um, um, either a coalition or a single party one. Mm-hmm. Only both can work. Secondly, a recognition by the prime minister that it's desirable to leave people in post longer. And if you do have vacancies, plug them in different ways. Also, say to ministers, I'm appointing you housing minister. Um, Here's two or three priorities. Don't do too much. Focus on a three-year timescale, something like that. And we'll leave you and the Secretary of State, if you're Secretary of State or whatever, to get on with it. And so it's realistic time scales for planning and implementation of policy and not moving people around in key posts. I mean, in some places it matters much less, um, but in others, just a, a, a slowing down the process, a, 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 and which will affect ministers themselves, which will recognise they can do things for the longer term, only if you want to achieve real change. Um, um, it's just going to take time, and it's going to take time to implement. And the other thing which is a kind of very, uh, might seem perverse now, given current politics. Successful change also ultimately depends on it being accepted by the opposition party. Now, that doesn't necessarily happen initially, Mm. um, but in other areas it does happen. I mean, quite a lot of... Some of the education changes, whilst they're fiercely contested at the time, both under Ken Baker and later some of the stuff under Labour and then under Michael Gove, actually embedded in because there was an implicit agreement on not all of it, but on, on much of it. Similarly, on, I'm less true on health, but it was true initially on health. And if you get some cross-party support, or in some way acquiescence, that helps too. Do you think it, we're in danger in this current climate of losing that legitimacy of the opposition, that legitimacy of difference? It, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it shouldn't, it shouldn't be scrutiny. Of course there should be. And when the main cases there are basic differences which have now come out I mean, in politics at present. But it does make it harder to implement changes, particularly in some of the major social policy areas. I mean, one which has been successful um, is on pensions. Quite a lot of the pension, I'm not the... Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking mainly um, of the changes in state pension and, uh, and so on. Some of that has been quite successful embedded in. Um, what happened under Labour was... A, basically accepted by the Tories. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff Steve Webb, David in the coalition with Ian Duncan Smith, has been accepted on pensions. Now, there are a lot of pension things which are controversial, but ultimately you've got to project for long term and try and get support for that, which doesn't mean, oh, parties don't have their own views. Of course they do. But if it's no good to, to produce a policy on something as long term as that, which the opposition says we're going to scrap. If you had a magic wand then? And you were able to do one thing to either to improve the system of governance, to improve the long-term thinking, to try and build this form of consensus that you might have spoken about. What would it be? I'd have fewer ministers. Hmm. Um, we have too many. Um, we have far more than in most other countries. Now, the difference in the political system. And one of the ironies is, despite privatisation in the 80s and 90s, despite devolution in the 90s and, and, and post-2000, we've actually got more ministers than we had before then. I mean, there has been a reduction in ministers dealing with state industries, as they used to be called, fairly obviously. And, and there's been a reduction in the Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland offices. However, it's been more than compensated by increases elsewhere for patronage reasons. I tighten the straw on that quite 
So you couldn't have unpaid ministers and you enforce the law, the number of paid ministers. And I would say to prime ministers, try and think of it longer term. You think that's possible? Hope for that. Uh, oh, it's wishful thinking. I mean, in the current environment, I mean, I say at the end of, end of my book, 50 Minutes of Power, you know, with Brexit it's overshadowing everything, um, this is desirable, but I can't claim it's, it's like it happened. Indeed, there was a cut-off point when I wrote the book in February, mm. and there were, the number of changes between February and um, the Tory leadership election, and then you had, you've had the whole new government since then, um, uh, appear to kind of, I mean, these are exceptional circumstances and all that. I'm just hoping that the, the waves will settle at some stage and people will be able to say, well, what's good government? Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 